Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are continuing our look at the Anglican heritage, and today we are going to take a little bit of a detour. We have for the past several weeks been looking at a great deal of history, um, a lot of royal history, a lot of history of the church. We've been looking also at a great deal of doctrine, the teachings of the church, what Anglicans believe historically. But today we're going to just take a brief foray and talk a little bit about worship. Um, We briefly waded into this last week, and um, it has generated a great many questions over the course of this week, and so I thought perhaps we ought to spend a little more time talking about worship, because really that's what Anglicans do very well, in my opinion. There is an old Latin phrase, lex orende, lex credendi. And what it basically means is, loosely translated, the law of prayer is the law of faith. In other words, if you really want to know what Anglicans believe, look at the way they pray. Look at the way they worship. And I think this not only applies to Anglicans, although generally it has been, but it really applies to all Christians. If you really want to know what they believe, yes, you can look at their doctrines, you can look at their formularies, you can look at the Westminster Catechism or the Augsburg Confession, or you can look at the 39 Articles. But when all is said and done, the best way to know what they believe is take a look at how they worship. You've all heard the expression, actions speak louder than words. That's true. If the husband says that he loves his wife, but he beats her up every night, then we would obviously say that actions speak louder than words. I think that's also true when it comes to our worship. The way we worship says a great deal about what we believe. This is one of the reasons, incidentally, the prayer book revision has always been so controversial for Anglicans. Because when you change the liturgy or you change the service book, you have the potential to change the doctrine. And so, yes, prayer book revision is something that needs to be looked at. It needs to be done carefully. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. Worship. How do we worship? Now, that word worship is an interesting word. It comes from the Old English. It means worth-ship. And I pointed out to you last week that that's what church is really all about. It is about worship. It is applying worth or value to God. I think I said to you last week that when we worship, God is the audience, not the congregation. These guys up there dressed in those colorful robes and the collars, we're not the actors. You are the actors. Now, we participate in that with you, but God is the audience. We are the actors. We are there for His glory, for His benefit. That's why I prayed that prayer at the beginning. Help us to keep thy day, O Lord, the first of days. Sunday is the Lord's day. It's the feast of the resurrection. And so we are here for God's glory, for His honor, and for His good pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about how we Anglicans worship. One thing becomes very clear, we are a liturgical church. 
Now that word liturgy is an interesting word. It comes from two Greek words, actually. And it literally translated means the work of the people. One of those words is the word laos. It's the word from which we get the term laity. All right, the laity, the people. So worship, ascribing worth or value to God, is the work of the people. It's not the work of just the clergy or the members of the clergy. It is the work of all of God's people. Now, from the earliest days of the church, and when I say the church, I don't mean just the Anglican church, the Christian church, from the earliest days of the Christian church, one of the things that you will notice is that the services, the liturgy, the work of the people followed a set pattern. Basically, there were two parts to the service. And we're going to expand upon this in just a moment. But the first half of the service was open to the public. Anybody could come. Anybody could come to this portion of the service. Now, this has changed over time, of course. Today, we say anybody can come to the service, but there's a qualification, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But in the early days of the church, that was not necessarily the case. The first half of the service was open to the public. First half of the service had what was known as the opening acclamation. We still have an opening acclamation today. It's not necessarily a greeting, but it is a declaration. It is just that, an acclamation. And depending upon the the time of the year, the season in the church calendar, that opening acclamation may change. Normally, it's blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I said that this, for Anglicans, is very important because what it does is it puts the focus immediately on who? On God. It's not good morning, as polite as that may be, but it's blessed be God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Why? Because this is God's service. It's the Lord's day. And so the focus immediately is on Him. Now, sometimes... That opening acclamation changes. During Lent, for example, we'll say, Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. His mercy endureth forever. Sometimes during the Easter season, we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and the people respond, Alleluia, exactly. So that's the opening acclamation, and that's the greeting. That's how Anglicans do things, to put their focus on God. Part of this opening part of the service also includes the reading of Scripture. Enough, Anglicans probably have more reading of Scripture in their church service than almost any other denomination. We have a reading from the Old Testament oftentimes, a reading from the New Testament, from the Epistle. We often have a psalm that is read, and then we have a gospel. So that emphasizes the fact that we are a people of the Word. This was the practice of the early church. Then there is the proclamation of the Word, an exposition of the text. And that is the sermon, and there's normally singing involved. Singing, praise for the Lord. It's been said that when you sing, you pray twice. And Anglicans believe in singing. We're a singing people. Don't let the Methodists say that they're the singing people. We're we're singing people as well. So, from the earliest days of the church, this was the first part of the service. That's what you would get. If you went into any church, whether it was in the east or in the west, normally the first part of the service would have something along those lines. The second half of the service, however, was confined only to those who were actually members of the church. And when I say actually members of the church, by that I mean they had actually been baptized. Now this is very similar, if you think about it, to Jewish worship at the time of Jesus and at the time of the Apostle Paul. 
You may recall that when Paul traveled on his first missionary journey, he went down the coast to a place called Seleucia from Antioch, took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus, and then he traveled back up to the continent of Pisidian Antioch, and he preached in the synagogue. And we're told that after he had preached, they begged him to come back the next week. He came back the next week, and we're told the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The whole city. That would have included Jews as well as Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were permitted to come into a Jewish worship service for the first part of the service. But they couldn't participate because they were not part of the community. In order to participate fully, they had to become Jews through the rite of circumcision. Yeah, well, of course, that might have been a little bit of a deterrent. Um, But nevertheless, there was a rite of initiation before you could become part of the community. The same thing is true for Christians. What is the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision? It's baptism. All right? So if you were a person who was not a Christian, but you were interested in the church, you were welcome to come and participate in the first half of the worship. But the second half of the worship was for family only. And that is Holy Communion and prayer. Holy Communion and prayer was restricted only to those who were members of the church. Now you might say, well, that that seems a little closed. I'm I'm not entirely comfortable with that, but think about it for a moment. What is communion? It is fellowship with God, isn't it? It is remembering His death and His resurrection on our behalf. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you're not in communion with him. Now, that's not to say that you can't come into communion with him. It's not to say that you cannot come into a point where you have fellowship with him. But if you are not, this is something that is restricted specifically for believers. And the same thing is true for prayer. Prayer is a privilege for Christians. It has to do with relationship. I've said to you before, Christianity at its heart is not about religion. It's about a relationship. It is about a person. This is one of the things that makes Christianity unique. If you take Christ out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. And you say, well, there were ethical teachings. That's true. But actually, if you think about the ethical teachings of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what we call the golden rule, that sort of thing, actually, that's not unique to Jesus. The reason why we pay attention to it is not what Jesus said, it's what Jesus did. It's that he died and he rose again. And because he rose again, that's the authentication of his rule, his ministry as the mediator, and that's why we pay attention to what he says. So the second part of the service was reserved only for believers, only for those who had been initiated into the life of the church. So get this. In order to become a Christian in the early days of the church, it was a process. And that process took three years. Three years. So if you were serious about this, it was a commitment of three years. Now what's significant about three years? Well, Jesus ministered for three years on this earth, did he not? Three public years. And so that was the length of time for a catechumenate. You would go through a period of being catechized for three years. And then you would be baptized normally on what was known as the Easter Vigil, the night before Easter, and then you would receive your first Holy Communion as part of the community, part of the fellowship, part of the family on Easter Day. 
the Feast of the Resurrection. So in those early days, they took this seriously. And then you could participate in what? Family conversation. In prayer. Now, as I said, standards have relaxed significantly since the early days, and some of you are probably relieved to hear that. But if you think about it, we still have a closed communion. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, you know it's a closed communion in the sense that you have to be a Catholic in order to receive communion. And I know that many of you who've been to Catholic Mass, whether it's at a funeral or at a wedding or something, and the priest stands up and said, unless you're a Catholic, you cannot receive communion, and it really rubs you the wrong way. And some of you say, well, I just went up and took it anyway. Because you've confessed that to me, and I've absolved you. At any rate... <laughs> We have a closed communion as well. We do. Um, One of the things that I say every Sunday is, for those of you who are visiting with us today, we want you to know that this is not St. Philip's table. This is what? The Lord's table. All Christians who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity, are welcome to receive communion. But our table is open only to Christians. You may come and participate in the first part of the service, but the second part of the service is restricted for those who are part of the family. Now, we'd love for you to join our family, but this is something that is restricted for Christians. So Holy Communion is only for those who are the followers of Christ and have made that commitment. The same applies to the prayers, as I said. Here's what Dom Gregory Dix once said. Dom Gregory Dix was a great Anglican liturgical scholar. He was a Benedictine monk. That's right. Anglicans actually have orders of nuns and monks. It's true. They often wear the same habits that you see that Roman Catholic nuns wear. Now, we don't have too many orders in the United States, but there are a number of orders in England. Dom Gregory Dix was a Benedictine monk, and he was a liturgical scholar. And this is what he said. The church had a corporate duty to preach the gospel to the world. That's what Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the church had the corporate duty to preach the gospel to the world and witness to its truth. But prayer was another matter. The church, and that word church comes from the Greek, it means ekklesia, it means gathered out ones, called out ones. The church is the body of Christ and prays in the name of Jesus. Now, those of you who were in my study on James this past week, we talked about this, how it is that we pray. As Christians, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is our mediator, our advocate. Justin Hare, are you in the room? He's right there in the back. You're going to hear a great sermon today on just that, Jesus Christ as our mediator, as our priest. We pray in the name of Christ. It's only through the merits and mediation of Christ, you and I, sinful beings that we are, have the ability to come into the presence of Almighty God, the judge of the living and the dead. So the church is the body of Christ. It prays in the name of Jesus. The world had a right to hear the gospel, but those who have not yet put on Christ cannot join in offering prayer. So that was the pattern of the early church. And in many respects, you'll notice, it is still the pattern today. Now expand on this in just a moment. Now, as I said, that means we are a liturgical church. For many people, that seems rather formal. You know, very formal. 
Some people would even say it's stuffy. What I want to suggest to you is that there really is no such thing as a non-liturgical church. Every church, doesn't matter where you go, is going to have some set pattern for their worship service. It may be that you go in and you greet each other, and then there's a call to worship, and then perhaps they have a reading of Scripture, they have a propening prayer, and then there's a sermon for 45 minutes, and then there's a closing hymn. But whatever it is, there is a followed set pattern no matter where you go. This is true for Baptist churches as well as for Anglican churches. Ours is just a little more complex. But there's a very good reason for that. What is the value of liturgy? What is the value of being a liturgical church following a book? And I'm holding up not a Bible, but the book of common prayer. What is the value of this? number of things. First of all, it brings order and decency. God is a God of order. Let me just be very clear to you. If you go into a worship service and there is chaos, that is not God. All right? that, is, that is not God. Now, that's not to say that God can't do some surprising things. I don't want to imply that at all. In fact, there's somebody sitting in this room who once came up to me after I preached a sermon, shortly after I became the rector at St. Helena's, and this person was actually a member of St. Helena's at the time, and I preached this sermon, and she came out, and I was standing in the line, and she whispered in my ear, when the Holy Spirit begins to move, it becomes very frightening for the rector. And I was terrified for 17 years when I was down there. So that's not to say that God the Holy Spirit can't do extraordinary things. But one of the things that you'll notice as you read through the scriptures is that God is a God who brings order, not chaos, not confusion. It's right there at the beginning of Genesis. And the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, which was chaotic. And God said, let there be. And the creative acts of creation, the successive acts of creation are all designed to bring order out of the chaos. Think about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when they were caught in that terrible storm. What did Jesus do? He rebuked the wind and the waves, and there was calm. And what Jesus did there in nature, he intends to do in your life and mine. If there's confusion, if there's chaos in your life, that is not God. So one of the things that liturgy does is it reminds us that God is a God of order. Worship is not meant to be chaotic. You say, well, I like the chaos. It's not your service. (laughs) Whose service is it? It's God's service. We do it the way He likes it done, not the way we like it done. Quite frankly, I don't like chaos, so I'm on God's side when it comes to this. (laughs) So it brings order and decency. It brings focus to the worship service. It helps us to remember why we're there who this is all about. If you follow the service of Book of Common Prayer from the beginning of the liturgy the whole way to the end, it is all about God. It is all about His glory. We begin with, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and we end with, Let us go forth in the name of Christ. From first to last, stem to stern, it is all about God. Because the tendency of human beings is to get distracted and to go off in a different direction And the liturgy helps us to remain focused. It brings balance to the worship service because what that means is that we're not going into church wondering what is going to happen today. 
That can be rather terrifying, isn't it? If you're, if you're going into church and you just don't know what's going to hit you today. There are no surprises in the worship service. Well, that is, unless you're the clergy. There are all kinds of things that surprise us. When somebody drops over the cross or knocks over the baptismal font or that sort of thing. But for the most part, what it does is that it brings a sense of balance to our worship services. Here's something else it does. It teaches and imbues. Now, for those of you who have been raised in the Anglican tradition, you've heard the old expression, familiarity breeds what? Well, maybe not contempt, but it can. It has the potential to breed apathy. That is to say, you do the same thing over and over again, and it just becomes rote. I want you to understand, that can be true of anything in life. It can become rote, but it doesn't have to become rote. And that's why I encourage some people, even if you know the liturgy by heart, even if you know the prayer book by heart, sometimes it is helpful because some people are visual learners, some are auditory learners, they they learn by hearing, but some people learn by seeing. I'm a visual learner. If I see somebody's name on a name tag, I'm going to remember it. If you tell it to me, hmm. So I oftentimes, even though I know the liturgy by heart, I will look at the words because seeing those words just really imprints it upon my heart. But if you listen to the prayers of the liturgy, and people who come from other traditions tell me this. They say, man, if you really listen to those prayers, those are meaningful prayers. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Think about that. Those are powerful words. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and our wickedness. If you listen to those words, it is powerful, folks. It is powerful. It will teach you a great deal about God. Lex serende, lex credendi. The law of prayers, the law of faith. You listen to those words, they are teaching you something about God. They were carefully chosen, many of them by Thomas Cramer, in a time in which to say those words might cost you your life. So they are deep and they are meaningful. They teach, they also imbue. That is to say, over time, you keep doing something, and eventually it will begin to transform you. I once had a professor in seminary, and somebody came to him and said, I was having, they were having a hard time believing the Christian gospel, and he said, well, try living it. And this person, a woman, tried to start really living as a Christian, and all of a sudden it began to transform her. 
it will teach and it will imbue. I don't know how many of you have ever seen this movie. If you haven't, I encourage you to go ahead and rent it. I'll be honest with you, it's one of those sort of artsy-fartsy movies. Lots of people don't like it. Some great actors in it. Nigel Hawthorne and Helen Mirren. It is the story of King George III of England. Now, King George III was known as the Mad King. He was the king during the time of the American Revolution. He was uh, a king who suffered from uh, actually a hereditary disease that caused him moments, temporary moments of insanity. Uh, This is one of the reasons, you've heard the Charlestonians, if you don't know anything about the madness of King George, you know about the Regency period, don't you? You've heard of Regency architecture, Regency furniture, and so forth. This was the same time period, because the king went temporarily insane, but he was still alive, so his son became the Prince Regent, and that whole period known as the Regency period, all right? So this is King George III. Toward the end of his life, he began to have these bouts of insanity. And this movie recounts that. What's it like when the king of England goes insane and you don't know what to do about that? How do you treat the king? Well, this was, of course, the 18th century, early 19th century. Of course, their knowledge of medicine was somewhat limited. So they had all kinds of ideas as to what was wrong with the king. Uh, He would suffer sometimes from fevers, which they believe was the result of too much blood in your system. So what they would do is they would bleed you. They would bleed you. Or they believed that he had too many humors in his body or in his blood. And what they would do is they needed to get rid of these noxic humors. And so what they would do is they would sometimes blister you. They would take these huge globes, hot globes of glass, and they would blister a person, and they would get these huge blisters, and then they would lance them to get rid of these noxic humors. Now, this is how they're treating the king of England. We would call that torture today, all right? It would be abuse today. But nevertheless, that's how they did it. In the same way that there was a time in history when we did shock treatment on people. This was the 18th, early 19th century version of shock treatment. And it is shown in the movie. The king's completely out of his mind. Absolute judge. He's saying all kinds of things, makes no sense. He's out there talking to the trees and to the blades of grass and all this sort of thing. And so they're desperately trying to shock him back into sensibility. And he's just saying gibberish. And there's this one powerful scene in the movie where the king of England is tied to a table. And these physicians are doing these terrible things to him. He's in awful pain, and it's just gibberish coming out. Gibberish, 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 until all of a sudden, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit he immediately erupts into the colic for purity. And you say, where in the world did that come from? It came from the fact that this was a king who in the early days of his life was very devout, went to church almost every single day, and somehow the words of the liturgy got deep down inside his person, deep down inside his bones, to such a degree that even when his mind was gone, When he was in pain, something reached deep down into his heart and cried out to God. I have been with people who are sick and dying, and I'll go in there and the doctor said, well, they're really sort of out of it. And you'll be talking to them, and it's true. You're not getting any response. And then I will always say the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
And all of a sudden, you will begin to watch their lips move. Something happens. It gets deep down inside your bones. That's what the liturgy has the power to do. And that's why we are a liturgical church. So don't take it for granted. Recognize the value of what we do. Pay attention to those words. Let them get deep down inside your bones. When Cranmer put together the prayer book, and particularly what we would call the communion service, he had a dual focus. Word and sacrament. And that's why, as Anglicans, we have communion more often, perhaps, than many of our Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist friends. It's because we believe in a dual focus. Word, the proclamation of the word, but also Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, he didn't say how often to do that. What we do know is that in the early church, if you read in the book of Acts, they apparently did it a lot more frequently than many Protestants do today. Because we're told that they gathered together in each other's homes and they broke bread. That breaking of bread is a reference not to just having a meal together. It's a reference to Holy Communion. And so everything we do, we hear God's word preached to us, and then in response to that, we come forward. And we receive the bread and wine in remembrance of what he has done for us. There is a point in the service where we have the peace. And I know that in some churches, the peace was controversial. I want you to know something about the passing of the peace. The passing of the peace is an ancient Christian tradition. If you don't like the passing of the peace, you ought to be grateful that all we do is shake hands. Because in the early church, it was called the kiss of peace. Now, we could never get away with that with COVID right now. But at any rate, yes, there was a point where we would join in fellowship. Here's how the, the liturgy was laid out. You would have that opening acclamation. You would hear the word of God read. You would hear the word of God explained in the sermon. And then in response to God's word, you did what? You confessed your sins. The idea being cut to the quick. So you would confess your sins... And then the priest would stand and give absolution. That does not mean that the priest is forgiving you your sins. No priest has the ability to do that, save that one perfect priest, Jesus Christ, you're going to hear about in the sermon. But what the minister can do is give the assurance that if you have truly confessed your sins, you are forgiven. As an officer of the church, I assure you of the forgiveness of Christ. But you know, when you sin, you not only sin against God, you sin against your neighbor. Often that's what our sins are, aren't they? They're they're sins against our neighbor. And so we have to have peace with God. We also have to have peace with each other. And that's what the peace represents. When we confess our sins, we have peace with God. We also have peace with one another. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Then we share the peace with each other. And then, and only then you'll notice, do we have Holy Communion. Because it's after we have peace with God and peace with one another then we can come to the Lord's table and receive these, his inestimable benefits. That he may dwell in us and we in him. So there was always that dual focus in Cranmer's service. You had to have both. 
not just communion without the word. In fact, according to the Anglican canon, the laws of the church, there has to be a sermon with Holy Communion. It's required. So for those of you who don't like preaching, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. You can't get the bread and the wine unless you get the sermon. There must be instruction. The Word of God must be proclaimed before there can be Holy Communion. So it is a dual focus. Word and sacrament. This also means that our architecture reflects this dual focus. The architecture of Anglican churches reflect this dual focus. Let me show you how this is. That is a Presbyterian church, a colonial Presbyterian church. What's the focus? What's the most dominant feature in that church there? It's a lovely church. What's the most dominant feature? You can't miss it. It's the pulpit. The chandelier. It's not the chandelier. It's always a troublemaker. It's the pulpit, isn't it? Because in that tradition, the most important thing, obviously, is the what? The preaching of the word. And in many Presbyterian churches, that's exactly the way it is. It's the preaching of the Word. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you probably know me enough by now to know that I value preaching and teaching. But in that tradition, that is the primary focus. Now, what's the primary thing that you see in that particular photograph? Yeah, that that big tall thing in the middle that's called a baldacchino. A baldacchino, that big canopy that you see there. Now that canopy, that baldacchino, stands above the altar. That is the Vatican, yes, but it's not above the Pope. That's an altar in there. That's the altar at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The central feature in that great church, the largest church in Christendom, I might add, is what? The altar. Because in the Roman Catholic service, The primary means of worship is the what? The Mass. The celebration of the Mass. So you'll go into a Presbyterian church and you're going to get a 45-minute sermon. At least that was the way it used to be. And in the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to get an elaborate communion service and a little homily. So you can see the focus. In most Protestant churches, the emphasis is upon the Word. And the Catholic Church is on the sacrament. But we Anglicans, we believe in the via media, the middle way, balance. So what's the focus in that church? Now, the picture is kind of from a distance, but hey, listen, you should be familiar with that picture. (laughs) There are two things that are dominant at St. Philip's. Two things that you cannot help but notice. One, of course, is the pulpit. It is a tall pulpit. I've been told by the bishop it's the best pulpit in the diocese. I personally happen to agree. It is. It is a magnificent pulpit from which to preach. And it is elevated, meaning what? The value of the word. You've got the lectern over here, what we call the eagle, the eagle lectern over here. Yes, that's important. That's where the reading of the word. But the pulpit is the preaching of the word. It is of value. It is of significance. Because it tells you the word is important. 
But the other thing that your eye is immediately drawn to is what? The altar. That stained glass window above it. It is up there, further up and further in, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis. So it's a dual focus because we are saying that both the word and the sacrament is important. So architecture means something, you see? See how we do that? So as Anglicans, we believe in there should be a balance on both of those things. First part of the service, if you look in the prayer book, it's called the ministry of the word. The second part of the service is commonly referred to as the ministry of the table. Yes. Well, that is another thing, yes. Many churches, uh, incidentally, it does look like a great cross, doesn't it? Um, yes, many churches were built in a cruciform nature. So, you had a center aisle, and you had transepts going off to the side. So, from atop, and this is true of many cathedrals in England, for example, you'll notice that they're in the shape of a cross. Absolutely. So, all of this is designed to do what? To draw you in and to tell you what is important. And let me tell you something, folks. I know this to be true. I've been in churches that are sort of contemporary churches, that are not traditional churches. They're sort of nondescript. And you walk in and you don't really feel that you're in a holy place. Whether they're in there drinking coffee and having a good time and so forth. When you walk into a place like St. Philip's, it's amazing to watch people come in off the street when the docent program is up and operating and they know that there's something different about this. Men somehow feel that they ought to remove their hats. People begin to talk, talk in a hushed tone. It's because there's something about this that speaks of reverence. And that was the intention. That was the intention. There's a lot more we could say about architecture, but that's good enough for our purposes today. Thomas Cranmer believed that worship was not just something we did on Sunday. It should be a way of life. Giving worth, value to God as his creatures should be a way of life. We should pattern our life in terms of worshiping God. Not just something we do in church on Sunday. We live chaotic, busy lives. Now, I know that most of you know what that is. That's called a daytimer. Uh, many of you, you probably use your phones to keep track of things these days. I still use a daytimer because I need to see the whole month at a glance. But that's what our lives look like. I don't know about yours, but that's what my life looks like. It's busy. It's chaotic. And it's very easy in that kind of busy, chaotic life to crowd God out. Let's be honest. God gets the crumbs from our table. But what liturgy and what a liturgical church does is it helps to bring order again to the chaos and it helps to emphasize priorities, the things that really matter. This is one of the reasons why we follow a liturgical year. Farmers lived according to the seasons of the year. And as Christians, we live according to the seasons of the year. And if you pay attention to the liturgical calendar, the church's calendar, the world has its calendar with its days, with its celebrations, with its holidays, one of which is today, which is what? 
Halloween. Now that has nothing to do with the church. Trick or treat. And yet it does. This is the Feast of All Hallows' Eve. Tomorrow is a major feast day in the life of the church. We'll transfer it to next Sunday. It's All Saints' Day. It's such an important day. It's one of the few days we can actually transfer from a weekday to a Sunday to celebrate it. But the world has its holidays, and we celebrate them. The church says God's holidays are the most important. And that word holiday is an interesting word. It comes from holy day. So you have secular holy days, the state's days, and then you have the churches. And so we follow a calendar. The beginning of the church's year is not January. The beginning of the church's year is Advent. The first Sunday in Advent, which is what? That season which leads up to the coming of Christ. It's a, it's a season of anticipation hopefulness. It's a season of not yet, but soon. And so we build up to Advent. Then we have the season of Christmas. Christmas is not a day. So I'm here to tell you, do not put your trees out on the street on December the 26th as though it's all over with. I don't care if Lowe's has their trees up already. Our season doesn't begin till Advent, and it's not over until the Epiphany which is January the 6th. Then we enter what is commonly referred to as the ordinary time. All right. Then we have Lent, which is a season of penitence, a season of preparation. Then you have the time where we talk about Christ's death upon the cross. We celebrate the season of Easter, which again is a, is an, is a season. And then we have what again is known as ordinary time. And the colors reflect... The liturgical calendar. So Advent, the season of anticipation, is either purple or blue. All right? Christmas, white. Celebration, not red and green. White in the church. Ordinary time is green. It represents things that are growing. And God is the one who gives life and growth to all things. Lent is a season of purple. Easter is a season of white. So when we follow the liturgical, you know, in some churches, it, it, it always astonishes me. You have Palm Sunday, and then all of a sudden, they show up, and it's, it's Easter. No Good Friday. I'm astonished at the number of Protestant churches that do not have a Good Friday service. You know, tricky thing about a resurrection. <laughs> in order for somebody to rise again, somebody's got to die. So all of this, you see, is designed to teach people to get the message of the gospel down in their bones. And what that means is that symbols have significance. You know this. As Anglicans, we recognize that symbols have value. Why was it that after 9-11, every time that went up the pole, people got misty-eyed? What is that? That is nothing but a multicolored piece of material. It's not alive, it's not living, it's not breathing. But there's not a person in this room that does not recognize that it represents something much greater than itself. Freedom, but not just freedom, a host of things. It represents a whole history. 
It represents a people. It represents sacrifice. It represents a whole host of things. Representative government, whatever you want to say. But we recognize what it represents, what is important. And that's why when it goes by, we uncover our heads. We put our hands over our hearts because we recognize the value of what it represents. Well, the same is true in our churches. Things represent other things, things that are of much more value and significance. That's why the thing that you always see in the front of an Anglican church is the cross. It's because we are the people of the cross. When children are baptized, we sign them with the cross. When people die, we sign them with the cross. It's because we are people of the cross who were bought at a great price, the price of Christ's own death on our behalf. And that's the reason why an Anglican of you coming from other traditions wonder why before we go into the pew or when we pass by the cross or when the cross goes down the aisle we bow our heads we're not worshiping these things but it is a sign of reverence for what they stand for listen your bodies matter you should worship god with your bodies i mean when you go to a football game and it's your team and you really like football and your team makes a touchdown do you stand out there and go Chances are you're what? You're cheering. You're excited. Why do we not get excited about God? Shame on us if we don't get excited about Him and all that He does for us. And so when we pass before the cross, when the cross goes down, we bow our heads out of reverence for what Christ has done on our behalf. Before we go into our pew, we reverence the cross and the altar. Because the altar represents sacrifice. We're not worshiping these things, but it is a sign of reverence. That's why we say we reverence the cross. We reverence the altar. Everything we do, everything we do, has symbolic significance. Even in churches, we have smells and bells. You know what incense represents? It's biblical, by the way. So if you ever see it around here, probably not anytime soon, but if you ever see it around here, what does incense represent? The Bible said it represents the fragrant prayers of the people being offered up before God. So these things have value and significance, and if you pay attention to them, they will teach you a great deal. And what's more, they will get down inside your heart, your mind, your bones, and you will be transformed by the inside out. Now, when it comes to this sort of thing, crossing yourself in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you'll notice that some people do that. What you need to understand is that we don't require this of anybody. In Anglican churches, there is always freedom! <laughs> but here's what Cranmer said about all those things. Whether you, you know, whether you cross yourself every time we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost whether you reverence the altar and the cross as you come in or as it goes down the aisle, whatever it may be, we want you to have freedom. The purpose is to help you worship more effectively the Lord. And so Cranmer said this, touching, kneeling, crossing, holding up hands, knocking, holding up hands. Dare we raise our hands in church? I Well, I don't know. Cranmer said it, 16th century. Good enough for him, good enough for me. Touching, kneeling, crossing, holding up hands, knocking upon the breast and other gestures, they may be used or left as every man's devotion serves without blame. 
So let me just give you, close it out here. I'm running a little over. Just hang in there with me. Cliff notes for beginners. All right? For those of you who are new to our tradition, if you want to know, I don't know whether to sand, to sit, or what to do, well, you can always take the advice of the old sailor, drop anger and just rise and fall with the tide. But <laughs> if, if you'd really like to know why we do what we do, please understand that to pray, we kneel. That's generally the habit. We kneel. Why? Because you're in the presence of the Lord of the universe. Did you ever notice when people came into the presence of Jesus, they fell down on their knees? Did you ever notice that when the angels appeared, people fell down on their knees? Well, if they're going to fall down on your knees before an angel, why not before the Lord? So we kneel to pray. So when we say, let us pray, generally we get down on our knees, if you can. If you can't get down on your knees, you are forgiven. For instruction, that is for the reading of the scriptures, except for the gospel, but for the reading of the scriptures and for the sermon, for instruction, we sit. And when it comes to praise, we stand. All right? So we kneel for prayer because we are coming into the throne room and you are bowing before the king. We sit for instruction that God might speak to us. And then we respond by standing to praise his holy name. That's what we do. So when you sing, and everybody else is sitting around you, and it's arousing him, and you want to stand up, don't be shy. It's perfectly Anglican to stand up and praise the Lord. And that's what we're going to do in just a moment. Let's pray. You, you can sit. It's a hard floor. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful tradition. There is so much here that we do have a tendency to take for granted. As we prepare to go into worship now, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of people you seek to worship you. And now, Lord, we ask not for whom the bell tolls, for we know it tolls for us right now that we might come into your presence. So grant us grace to do so. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.